have this really incredible intersection. You come from the world of VC, you are an investor, you've worked with founders on what is probably one of the most stressful and challenging parts of any business, but then you also learned how to work with founders on how to develop professionally, personally, emotionally, spiritually in ways that inevitably impact their leadership. I think that is the most interesting part of the conversation because both for myself and a lot of these conversations are really things I'm exploring, uncovering, dissecting as a leader, but then also for listeners out there who I think run the gamut between founders and entrepreneurs and creatives, taking any bit of information and context from the work that you've done and how you've helped to develop and grow founders. And by the way, even what they collectively are going through. A lot of what we do on the Fahrenheit podcast, I think, is uncover the truths that like a lot of people don't talk about. When I was at Sweet Green, which obviously, you know, I was in my dream job. I was living the ultimate dream at a values-driven company with incredible founders, a brand that was so powerful, culturally relevant, making real change and real impact, but there was something in me that wasn't fulfilled. And the choices that I was making and the roles that I was taking and the opportunities I was jumping at, in some ways, they just weren't aligned with me, even though mentally I thought they were. And I went on this journey to really understand, could I be happy and successful at the same time? And what I learned was that the thing that I thought that I wanted the most, while remarkable, was not actually fueling me in the right way. I learned at that time that my mental health was so important because what I didn't know was that it was impacting my role as a leader at Sweetgreen. And at the end of the day, that alignment really starts within yourself. It's a feeling. If I wasn't aligned, I couldn't lead effectively. And I was constantly going to disappoint not only myself, but quite frankly, probably my leaders and my team. For me, this was the moment where I realized self-help development in every facet and capacity was critical to being a great founder and a great leader. What inspired you to start working in the way that you do in this intersection between investing and coaching? Well, I think you know that my wife, Eliza Blank, is the founder and CEO of a company called The Sill. Eliza started The Sill in our Lower East Side apartment, oh, I think, oh, I guess, geez, almost a decade ago. I remember she would come home at the end of the day and talk about all of the things that she was experiencing as a founder. And at the same time, I have way more friends that are in your shoes, right, that are in the founder's shoes than the investor's shoes. And that was true at the time. And what I found is all my friends were coming to me and saying, hey, you know, I'm having all these issues and I don't really know who to talk to other than maybe my friends that happen to be in this world. And what I ultimately realized was in these conversations, they were the people problems. As I like to say, like companies are just complex human systems. They're buckets of people problems. So that, that was the realization. The second realization, it was also like the existential, the deep work that's required to look in the mirror and say, like, what do I want? Like, what's important to me? What do I value? Like, how am I feeling about these, these situations? And I would emerge from these conversations with Eliza and my friends saying, like, I'm way more excited coming out of these conversations. B, I feel like I'm having a much bigger impact in them than I'm having in the boardroom as an institutional investor. And three, like I'm actually having like a real impact. And so out of those three things, I just decided one day I walked in into my apartment and I, this was probably around 2014 to just give you a sense of the timing. And I said to Eliza, here I am like a partner level at one of the top VC funds in New York. I said to Eliza, I think I want to be a coach. And she said, ah, you can do that later and <laughs> later in your career when you retire. And then sure enough, 
two years later, I decided to leave my role as a partner at RRE Ventures. And I was going to be in this sort of sabbatical period. And I decided to just throw myself fully into that process. And that was four years ago. In all of the work that you've done with founders to date, are there consistent truths of things that you find most early stage or even later stage founders are struggling with or challenged by? It's so context dependent, really, really varies. There are definitely commonalities, but it it depends on the sector. It depends on the stage of the company, really. Earlier stage, like pre-product market fit, it tends to be more like existential. Is this actually going to work? And managing the emotional ups and downs, whereas once you go beyond product market fit, whether it's series A, series B, then you start getting more into like, okay, how do I scale the team? How do I hire the best people? How do I motivate? How do I build a great culture? All those sorts of things that you've experienced firsthand at big scaling companies. And so I would say stage absolutely matters. But at the end of the day, I think there's a number of things. It's like people want to feel good. They want to have an impact and they want to do it in a way that allows them to feel like they're making progress. Every founder I work with wants to move faster. They're not moving fast enough. Just about every founder that I work with has a pretty strong inner critic. A lot of founders have a very hard time dealing with conflict. A lot of founders or first-time founders struggle with giving feedback, setting expectations, holding their employees accountable. Are you delivering on the things that you're saying? And then when that doesn't happen, and then that becomes a symptom of the culture, how do you deal with that? So, I mean, I'm just now starting to unpack like a lot of the things that I see, but there's flavors of all of this. As you were naming each one of those things, I'm thinking like, yup, yup, yup. What's been super interesting for me in this journey is that I worked for founders my whole career, as you know. And I always thought in some ways, the founder was like the end all be all messiah. They had all of the answers. And it wasn't until I started to become the age of the founders that I started to realize in some capacity, they're just me (laughs) doing the thing, having in some ways the bravery and the courage and maybe the risk tolerance to just run for this idea, the passion and the real energy that I have to go build this thing. But they're just like me. And when I became a founder myself, which was almost like an, an accident, I started working for founders and by nature of working for founders became one. It wasn't really until like a year into Fahrenheit when I, it occurred to me that I was actually mimicking the same relationship as the founders were working with. One of the reasons we started the Fahrenheit podcast was because I felt a little bit compelled to say, hey, for those of you out there who think that to be a founder, you need to know all the answers. You have to have it all figured out. You have to have an MBA and you have to have the best investors. The truth is you don't really need any of that because I'm a great example where really I just have the will, <laughs> the will and probably like the addiction to work. Chutzpah. The chutzpah. The chutzpah. Yeah, the gumption to go out and do it. Before I started Fahrenheit, I was working on an early stage startup. I actually had a lot of people tell me I couldn't do it, believe it or not. I came from the world of brand and brand marketing, proved myself as a marketer and a creative, but in the role of a CEO or even a co-founder, I got a lot of questions on, but can you do these other things? Can you operate the organization? Can you run finances? Can you look at the business more holistically? 
And I was very surprised actually by the pushback I got on not having gone to business school or not having any like GM experience. Those feelings, that feedback to me felt in some ways like failure. And then, as I said, a year into Fahrenheit, I'm like, oh, well, I'm actually managing like a very profitable business all by myself out of an Excel spreadsheet. And I think it was a really big lesson for me. Do you find that those moments with founders, those moments of being turned down or saying that, you know, it can't be done, most founders have the perseverance to push through? Or are those some of the roadblocks that you find hard for people to get over? I think it depends on the founder and what really drives them. I have worked with founders where that rejection or that skepticism has stopped them in their tracks. And the majority of founders that I work with run through it because they feel like they have a calling and they're on a mission and their identity becomes really tightly wound up in the organization and the pursuit and they let that propel them. Some founders that I work with are driven by that motivation. There's others that are driven by fear. And there are others that are driven by wanting like approval from people in their life. And there are others that are driven by wanting to prove people wrong, you know, high school friends and so on and so forth. And so you get this really broad range depending on the person and how they're wired, which I think is one of the most gratifying aspects of the work that I do is when people ask me, like, I I actually was in a coaching session on Friday and the founder, really, really talented individual said, how would you handle this situation if you were me? And I'm like, well, hey, I'm not you. And I've never been in this situation before and see the kind of organization you run is not a traditional like venture backed company. So sure, I could give you a best guess of advice or bring you through a framework, but like, what good is that going to do? And so I guess what I'm, I'm trying to say is like, that's a good example how the context really matters and how I show up and coach really needs to be dependent on the individual and how they're wired. And, you know, that takes time. If you think about how I engage with those that I work with, we just get started three months into the journey for us to get to know each other and really understand. I mean, we can make progress before the end of the third month, but I find that today, this morning, I had a session with a founder that I love working with and he and I have worked together nine months. He is building something new. I just looked at him 45 minutes or not even 45 minutes, about 40 minutes in the conversation, just hearing him talk and feeling his energy about where he is in his own growth and development and journey. And I just said, are we complete? And he said, yeah, we are. I think we are. He goes, actually, maybe. And I said, maybe's okay. And no, or yes is also okay. But to me, it feels like we're complete. And that doesn't mean that we won't work together at another point in time. But I felt like energetically, it was the right time for me to ask him that question because I had seen him develop over the last nine months and get to this point where I'm like, I don't, I actually don't think he needs me right in this next phase. That's an example where I'm tuning into what I think the person needs. And I just felt like in that moment, feels like we're done. Everyone is different. First of all, what a cool moment to feel that. 
It was interesting just now while you were talking, I realized the synergy between actually what you do and what I do. After years of building brands, I had this aha moment one day, which is building a brand has so much personal choice, feeling, and ego involved. And actually one of my old bosses, Karen Kelly, who was on the probably one of the first episodes of the Fahrenheit podcast, she asked me one day in, in her office, do you know what motivates your team? And exactly to what you just said, I went person by person and realized I knew some of them. Some of them wanted validation. Some of them wanted to like prove their ex-boyfriend that they could go out and accomplish more. Some were motivated by money. Some were motivated by success, whatever that looked like for them. All different forms of motivation, which by the way, are all warranted and all equal. In some ways, the clearer ones, like being motivated by money, were easier to manage as a leader. I knew that that employee, that was their goal. That's what they needed. And I knew exactly how to motivate them to be successful. It's the more esoteric, I think, ones that are harder. We have been brought up, and I think in the world of business specifically, and I worked for all male founders my whole life, we've been really taught to separate our emotion from what we do. And I was very emotional in my 20s. I was so passionate. I didn't even know how to channel it. I would cry. I would yell. The CEO of Michael Kors used to call me a natural disaster. He'd be like, where's the hurricane? Where's the tornado? And I just didn't know how to channel that passion and that emotion. But what I realized was if we are all motivated by something and that something is different than as leaders, how do we separate emotion from leadership? How do we separate what we're talking about here in terms of understanding, having human empathy, self-development and growth from the work that we do every day? And what I learned was for founders specifically, the building of the brand, which is the output of their mission, their vision, their values, both through language, but also through your, your visual identity, it is a very ego-driven process because you can't separate that feeling of my high school friends are going to see this. My mom is going to see this. What are people going to think of me? You can't separate those feelings as the founder and the brand. Now, some founders, it might not motivate them and they might care less about what their high school friends think. But then there's still some other motivation wrapped up in both the building of the company and the brand. And I think at Fahrenheit, one of the things I set out to do was say, how can we offer technical support to founders in the early stages of growth in terms of actually getting the tactical marketing and brand off the ground? But also, how do I add support to these founders when they're stuck? When they're not moving on something, there's a pain in the process. Most of it is a personal one. Most of it is rooted in their emotion, their ego, their fear. And how do I be a partner in, in thinking and working with them through it? A few years ago, I reached out to you and I asked you what coaching you did because I think I had that natural inclination through the process of working with founders. I realized I'm motivated by teaching and sharing, which is part of why we are here today. It's very interesting to hear you talk about it. And I think what we're really talking about here in this connection between business and personal, the overlap between your mental health and your company's success, it feels like the world is changing a little bit. And it feels like even the fact that you're here as a VC turned coach, turned VC slash coach, turned mixing it all into one is just a signal that the world is ready for a better experience. Yeah, well said. I mean, there's, there's a lot of threads in there that that we could pull on. One that really stood out to me was this idea of it's very, very hard to show up and lead and completely ignore your emotions. We are emotional creatures. It is the way that we are wired. 
I like to say we're nothing but balls of emotions. And I would actually say that there is obviously IQ, EQ, Daniel Goleman's book, Emotional Intelligence, really brought that to the forefront. I think I think it was 10 or 20 years ago, just celebrated the anniversary of writing that book. But EQ, I would argue, is if not more important, just as important. And unlike IQ, EQ, you can actually change. There is scientific evidence that says you can change emotional intelligence. And so like, what are the components of emotional intelligence? Things like self-awareness. How am I feeling right now? Like, what is that emotion that I'm feeling? What are the voices in my head saying, right? Am I thinking in images or am I thinking in words? What are the patterns of thought that I have over and over again? How are these helpful? How are they not being helpful? How might they be wrong? I'm just giving you that example of just this one bucket of self-awareness. Then there's self-management, which is the ability to manage yourself in situations. So everything from, okay, this person just said something, I'm triggered. Is it appropriate for me to respond in a, a negative way? How should I respond to this? So it's like, how do, I, how do I manage myself in my reactions based on my inner state and my inner dialogue? I should back up now because I don't want to go too much on a tangent, but those are just two buckets within emotional intelligence that are so important, so, so important, like self-restraint. Obviously, the super famous study was at Stanford, the marshmallow test, which is like, how do I know when I lean in or lean out and really not show restraint? When is the right time to, to show restraint and focus? And so the work that we do and, and I do as a coach and you know investor and soon integrated is helping leaders develop these muscles earlier in the process. Like I like to say like, meditation, while it's come a long way and it's becoming way more socially acceptable, I actually view meditation as a performance-enhancing activity. Like, it's not woo-woo. Like, yeah, sure, you're cross-legged, sitting upright, but it is, you're building those muscles that create resiliency, that allow you to be able to bounce back quicker, to be able to tune into the voices in your head and question the validity of them, to be able to focus intensely for long periods of time, for you to be able to almost create like an antenna. Like the work that I do around insight meditation and Vipassana, it's all about creating an antenna for me to be just way more aware, not only aware of what's happening outside of me, everything from sounds and smells, but then internal thoughts, feelings, sensations. And so to me, I, I just believe that as a leader, not developing these skills, because this also sharpens your intuition. This is why I think it's so important is because it allows you to, when you're in a meeting and you're tuning into your inner experience and how you're feeling and how certain people are making you feel and what they're saying. And, and, and in real time, you're trying to interact and by really understanding what's going on and like how people are making you feel, you can start to be like, okay, well, hmm, why do I feel that way? 
what do I want to do about it? Or, huh, I'm sensing that I don't trust this person. Why is that? Is this a story I'm telling myself? Is this the narrative? Or is this like, what are the observable facts? As you were talking about tuning in to your own emotion, I actually got like a wave of apprehension. This little thing in my brain is saying to me, who has time for this? And I think I'm someone that has a lot of awareness. I have a lot of awareness. And I would like to give myself some credit. I think emotional intelligence, the hard part for me is the action. I know all of the things I should do or I could do. And in some ways as a leader, I feel overwhelmed by it. And this is a very personal struggle, I think, that I'm sharing with you. But I have X amount of clients and founders that I support. I have X amount of team members who I every day feel like I don't give enough time to. Then on the personal front, I have all these things to make myself better, faster, and stronger that I know I should do. Everything from meditation to developing my mindfulness practice, which is something I have discipline around, to my therapy, to my business coaching, to running a mile a day and drinking water and sleeping eight hours. And then you layer on top of that, trying to be a remotely decent daughter, friend, and sister. It feels like a lot. How do you help founders allocate their time? Because at the end of the day, all of these things we're talking about that can enhance our performance, they take time away out of what at least for me feels like more natural productivity. Yeah, again, I do a lot of work around zone of genius. Ooh, tell us more. So this was developed by Dr. Gay Hendricks. I'm in the process of getting certified by the Conscious Leadership Group, which is an amazing, I just can't say enough great things about this organization. So basically the zone of genius is really where you thrive. It's basically your innate, I don't even want to call it expertise. It's the thing that you just can do better than anybody. And it feels effortless. You feel like it was the way you were born, the way you are wired as a coach. It's how do you help or how do I help my clients step more into their zone of genius and doing the things that they're great at and that they're best in the world to do. And so I think there it starts with that. Related to that, we do a lot of work around calendar audits. And what I like to call... <laughs> like, don't look at mine. Yeah. Don't look at mine either. I actually wrote a really long blog post on how to align your calendar with what you value most. If you do this work and you do the audit, you can start to pick apart things where it's like, you know, I didn't really need to take that meeting or I could have delegated this or, you know what, this actually just drains me. And what we do is I, I have my clients go through each, I, go, I have them look back for three months and almost like give an energy score, like thumbs up thumbs to the side, thumbs down. And to me, that means like increases my energy, energy neutral, like robbing me, draining me of my energy. Mm. And what I say is how can we start to help you design your calendar in a way where you're getting the most energy from it and you're in your zone of genius as much time as possible and that it's aligned with what's most important, not just individually, but also organizationally. And that's like typically where we start. Now that said, like you describing all of those things, the reality is, is that's a lot. If you look at my calendar, there's a lot on there. I put my personal stuff on it. There's not a minute of the day where I'm not, I'm not going, but I'm interspersing time where if I'm like, okay, 
I'm sensing back-to-back meetings all day, I'll throw in 30 minutes. And that 30 minutes might be me taking a 15-minute walk and doing some light email triage. Like I'm not batching, I'm just doing a quick scan, giving me a breath so that when I come back, I'm able to hit it harder. And so I work with founders on a lot of these kinds of things. And so it's like, how do you make your schedule work for you? And there's, I think there's a lot more embedded underneath the surface in terms of, you, you know, you describe this, like, there's not enough time in the day. There's a million constituents that I need to please. I always feel like there's more that I can do. And I think there's work that could be done just as, well, maybe you're doing exactly what you need to be doing. You're doing enough. This word of enough is always, is always a challenge. I think what you just said about it lying underneath the surface, I was at a wedding this past weekend and I saw an old friend of mine. She is an incredible music producer, crushing it in her career. And we both had this very interesting conversation where for both of us this past year, what we realized was that we were using work as an escape mechanism and as a place of comfort both for a variety of personal reasons, but also if you layer in COVID and the uncertainty that all of us were facing, a place where I felt very certain, very stable and very comfortable was in front of my computer. That was an area that is a world that I can control. And it was so interesting having a conversation with someone else to experience because as she was talking, I was realizing like, oh my goodness, I did that too. What she realized was every time she would watch the news, and hear all of the horrible things coming out around the pandemic, she would go back to her computer. And if it was two in the morning, she'd start working again. And it wasn't until the behavior became a pattern that she actually realized I wasn't being productive. I was using work actually as an escape. So for me, I think this question and this point that you made earlier, which is we can't separate our emotions from our work. It's impossible for us to lead without emotions or without who we are as a human. And without in some ways, the what we're going through in life bleeding into what we're going through at work because we are just, we're human. And that human nature plays a really big role. Do you think as leaders, emotional intelligence, EQ, IQ is something we should be teaching within our organizations and within our teams? Absolutely, I do. And to me, I think it's, it's in the context of how employees can actually show up. You know, everything from like asking for help. I don't know what I'm doing, but being afraid to ask for help. And so everything about like on an employee level, I think there's a lot of gold to mine there in terms of helping employees begin to recognize how they're showing up and how they're feeling in the environment, not like from a a touchy-feely, but so that they can be more productive and fulfilled and happy on the job. And, you know, it's even things about in terms of, I'm such a huge fan of nonviolent communication. It's just one of my favorite modalities or, or frameworks in order to give feedback. It was developed back in the 60s or 70s. And It is just such a simple framework and it's basically a very, it's, there's an acronym, which is O-F-N-R. So it's state your observation. Mm -hmm. What did you observe when you continually show up to our team meeting? This is how I feel and I get angry because I have a need, state what the need is. And then R, my request for you is that you show up on time. Mm -hmm. 
And that framing is just the observation, state the feeling, what need is not being met for, for you, and what the request is. It's just a very simple framework. And you're stating your feelings, you're stating your needs, and you're making a request. And I, I, I'm a huge fan of this. And like, I think that's an example of bringing emotional intelligence into the organization. When Satya Nadella took over at Microsoft, like obviously Microsoft is on an incredible run, arguably one of the best runs in corporate history. He had his entire executive team read nonviolent communication. Again, like it's just implementing nonviolent communication into an organization, I, I think clearly has huge, has huge benefits. I think communication in general is probably one of, if not the most important thing in any relationship. And back to, again, this intersection between personal and professional, I have found for me at Fahrenheit, when communication breaks down, everything else breaks down. When we are communicating with one another, we are flying and things are working. Setting expectations so that you're aligned and saying, okay, like we know who's doing what by when, who, what, when, making clear agreements, as we say in conscious leadership, impeccable agreements, when agreements are not being met and fulfilled, taking 100% responsibility, not making any excuses, owning them and creating a culture of accountability and around excellence. But that all starts to your point with communication. No question. And you know, it's interesting. I did not realize how hard communication was until I became a founder. We have a value called raise a hand and raise a hand really started as this idea of like, if you see something, say something. If you're feeling something, say something. If you think something could be done better, say something. And if all of us come at every moment from the right intention, which is one, to support our founders, two, to build great brands, three, to support each other and have meaningful relationships and make each other better, then there's nothing difficult. There is no hand that cannot be raised. And I talk about this ad nauseum daily. And in the last six months, there have been more moments where people didn't raise a hand than when they did. And actually, it was when one of my employees was actually leaving Fahrenheit. And she said to me, you know, raising a hand is a tall order. You're constantly challenged with all these feelings. What are they going to think? Am I going to get in trouble? Am I going to get someone else in trouble? Are they then going to be mad at me? Am I doing the right thing by raising the hand? It's not as easy to communicate as you think it is. And it's something that comes really naturally for me. And I think part of it is that I'm living, to your point, right now more in my zone of genius than maybe I ever have before. I can't quite say I'm complete, which I'd love to understand what that means. But I'm living more in my zone of genius because I'm, for the first time I'm crafting my own life and my own business. So for me, raising a hand and keeping it real comes more naturally. But when our team is communicating with one another, with how they're feeling, with how the work is going, with what they're going through with their founders, we can support each other and we can show up with that context. And to me, I think context is probably the most important thing in any situation. And probably because I'm a storyteller, I value that so much. But it's one of the hardest things I've learned in any business relationship. And there's such varying degrees of communication and so many layers that it's something I'm really chipping away at and working on within my, both my company and with the founders we work with. I'll just make a, a very, very quick point is raise a hand 
is very difficult to make work unless you create an environment that is psychologically safe. Unless your employees feel comfortable raising their hand. And the only way that they're going to feel comfortable raising their hand is by you setting the tone and by you setting an example where you're willing to be vulnerable and express like what's not working for you, what you're working on as a leader, where you could have done a better job. All those things will then give them the permission and the confidence to raise their own hand. That is the best point. And I would say, I try. Actually, Serena, who's on this call, I told her yesterday I messed up and I totally showed up to a conversation saying like, hey, I didn't do something right here. And I'm sorry for that. And the more you model that, I believe the more that your your organization will follow. Absolutely. And I think it takes time. It also comes to your point on how you were saying every founder journey is different. Every employee journey is different. Some are coming to Fahrenheit. It's their first real job. They've had incredible leaders and bosses in the past. They're not afraid to stand up for themselves. Some are coming from relationships that weren't as open, that weren't as vulnerable, that weren't as real. And there's behaviors you're having to really work through and work out. And so I think for me, you know, what you just said is completely right. The area I don't set a great example of my team is being a workaholic. I tell them to carve time. I tell them to create space. I tell them to take off whenever they want it. No one at Fahrenheit needs to ask for permission of any kind for anything they need, whether that is a mental health day, a vacation day, and I am not feeling my best day, whatever they want, but I don't live it, but I don't do it. What's interesting is, and I, I work with a lot of founders, as you know, few people are gonna, are gonna care as much as you. It's your baby. And I think it's very difficult for the majority of founders to believe that employees are going to put in as much as you. Now, that said, I'm a big believer in giving your employees the time, the space that they need to rest, recover, and recharge so that they can come back and be even more productive. One thing that you said earlier in the conversation, a thread that I just at least want to acknowledge because I think it's one that more people need to hear, which is that none of us have this figured out and we're all, we're all learning on the job. What I find, at least as I'm building high output and trying to build one of the best leadership development and venture firms in the world, is that there's no playbooks, right? And even though there's thousands of blog posts that have been written by thought leaders, the reality is, is that we're all just learning. I can say that for sure. Like I'm, I, I turned 41 not too long ago. I'm still learning. I'm learning every day. And in, until you're willing to just show up and acknowledge that, hey, look, I'm just learning. I think it, in some ways it, it's, it's freeing because it turns every day into an opportunity to learn and grow and experiment and test and say like, what am I going to learn today? As opposed to like being, oh shit, like, how do I figure all this out? Like I'm out of my skis, like I'm all by myself. It's like, no, we're all, we're all figuring it out. I think in some ways that's one of the biggest traits amongst leaders is a willingness to learn and grow. Not necessarily saying I have all the answers, but saying I'm excited to go find the answer. And I think how you framed it actually does feel quite freeing, which is it's not like, oh shit, I don't have the answer, which of course I feel every single minute of the day, but instead saying, okay, this is cool. I get to go find the answer. How much fun is that? Yeah, it's, 
it's like, I, I love this analogy being dropped into like a super dense jungle and all you have is a machete. It's just about whacking away. So you start getting space and perspective and you can begin to understand what's around you. And the further you go, now you can, anyhow, you can see high ground and come up on the high ground. And it's one way I like to look at it. I love that analogy. At some point, you start to see the forest through the trees. And what's interesting, and you know, you had said really earlier, you were talking about this person you work with and how they reached this moment with you of completion. Seeing the forest through the trees, you might have that moment, but then at some point there's inevitably another forest. And to take how you got through that first one, the motivation, the perseverance, the hard work, the dedication, the courage, it's really just, life is essentially just a series of those moments. And so... Thank you so much for the conversation today. I had an amazing time. So much to learn from you. And thank you again. Yeah, this was so much fun. 